Today I'm uh, wrapping up a series based on the exceptional book, Gentle and Lowly, by Dane Ortland. I don't have my copy of that up here. I was just going to read from it today rather than prepare a whole sermon. <laughs> so this might be short. Actually, 10 sermons over 15 weeks because we kind of broke for Palm Sunday, Easter, and then we had three Joy Together Sundays in there as well. So it took us a little longer to work through this than, you know, um, we didn't take a straight line through, but, you know, God, God works uh, straight on crooked lines. And so sometimes crooked lines work. I know a bunch of you have read the book. Uh, I'm preaching on it, and our small groups have been going through it. In other words, we've kind of gone all in on this book. And by the way, we make them available to all of our visitors free at the, at the welcome table. Because if there's one thing that we want you to know about Jesus, it's what he said about himself in Matthew 11, 29, and 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I hope, I hope this study has been helpful and fruitful for you, that what you've discovered and learned or maybe just been reminded of in this series will be something that forms you for a lifetime. It's been incredibly helpful for me as I've read through the book, written these sermons, and just spent time meditating on and absorbing what the Word of God says about the heart of Christ for us. I, I think it was Tim Keller that I heard this from for the first time years ago now. When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No. He was in agony, and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him in the, in the greatest act of love in history. He stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He, he loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. And for his own, Jesus persists in that determined love today and will persist in it through eternity. The heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers doesn't flash with tenderness occasionally or temporarily sputtering out over time. It persists steadily, consistently, everlastingly when all the loveliness has withered. How do we know? We know because of what John 13, 1 says, and with that which the, the final few chapters of all four Gospels narrate, J Jesus came to the cliff of the cross and didn't change his mind. He walked over the edge. John devoted more ink to the final week of Jesus' life than any other gospel writer. And the first verse of the 13th chapter kicks off this final extended section of his gospel. This is what it says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were with him in the world, he loved them to the end. John's statement that Jesus loved his own to the end launches the passion narrative and the arraignment and crucifixion of Christ is the historical demonstration of what's encapsulated in that verse. Jesus didn't retain anything for himself the way we tend to do when we seek to serve others sacrificially. He doesn't, to put it quite simply, he doesn't love like us. We love until we're betrayed. Genius, or Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we're forsaken. Jesus loved right through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And from that verse this morning, we're going to consider the activity of his love, the object of his love, and the persistence of his love. First, the activity of his love. A genuine honor that I have as a pastor is to take couples who are planning to be married through premarital counseling, something Lauren and I always do together both because she brings tremendous wisdom to it and because she keeps me roughly in the neighborhood of reality, <laughs> which, as most of you know, I can drift out of pretty quickly. One of the most famous sentences in literature is the opening of Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina. All, happily, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. In other words, there are a few fundamental things every single happy family does right. And there are a thousand ways to screw it up. So one of the very first things we talk about is what it means to love actually. And if you just thought about Hugh Grant, don't. <laughs> or try not to. But what it means to love actually, not to simply be in love. That's so easy, they call it falling. Because not surprisingly, as it turns out, our culture's conception of love hasn't, doesn't always sync up with what God both demonstrates and demands of love. And if I were to summarize it, I'd say it this way, love is far more shown than spoken. In fact, love that is simply spoken, even if it is felt intensely, is not love. Because love does. It's not just words that fall out of our mouth. It's a laying down of life. It's effort. Love does. On the wedding day, it's an easy thing to say publicly, I do. But all of us who have been married for a while can attest to this. It's much, much more difficult to privately, day in and day out, year in and year out, for some of us, decade in and decade out. Do and do and do. But love does. Here in John 13, 1 and throughout the Bible, God doesn't just speak love. 
does love, tangibly, corporeally, in the flesh. But God shows his love for us in this, it says in Romans 5.8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And just after these words written in John 13, what we see is Jesus, in one of the greatest demonstrations of love for his disciples to that point, washes their feet. One of those dirty jobs only the servant on the bottommost rung of the ladder would be expected to do. But here's Jesus, Lord of the universe, kneeling before them and taking up the servant towel to show his heart of love. And as we read, as we read through the next few chapters of John, we see him making his way unwaveringly to the cross and performing the ultimate demonstration of love as he absorbs the full wrath of God on our behalf. Every sin that you have ever committed and every sin you will ever commit, every sin that I have committed and every sin that I will ever commit was laid on Jesus in that moment on the cross and he endured the wrath of God that every one of our sins deserves and he endured it to the end because of his love for you. And, it, and in that moment when it says that everything turned dark and we would say that the father couldn't look upon his son, in that moment Jesus endures the forsakenness of the father he lived for. Why? Because he loves us. His love wasn't just spoken, it was demonstrated. He gave everything so that you and I could become the sons and daughters of God. His children. That's the activity of his love. Which brings us to the object of his love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So who are his own? Who is it that he loves until the end? John 1.12 explains it explicitly. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. They are those who have believed in him, who have received him, and have become his own children. Children of God are born spiritually by faith and by faith alone. When we hear the phrase, children of God are all God's children, it's often meant to apply to every living human being. But according to the scriptures, not every living human being is a child of God. Every human being is a creation of God, and every human being is created in the image of God. But a child of God must be born spiritually by faith in Christ. Another term that's often used to talk about becoming a child of God is the word saved. What it means ultimately is that we're saved 
from the wrath of God. We are saved from the penalty of our sin, an eternity of separation from God. You, you, in that psalm this morning, I don't, I don't know if you caught it. It's not one that I chose, but it was a little harsh in, in some parts. But it, it holds intention, this idea of the righteous and the wicked. There is judgment for all, but a, harsher, a harsh judgment for the wicked either. That's what we're saved from. We're also saved to some very important things, but that's beyond my remit this morning. Some believers can point to a specific turning point in their life when this happened, and some believers cannot. I can. Calvary Baptist Church in 1968 on a Sunday night. I can. C.S. Lewis couldn't. He thinks it happened on a motorcycle ride to the zoo at some point, but he says, when I left for the zoo, I didn't believe, and when I got to the zoo, I believed. As he explains it, and I think it's mere Christianity where he talks about this. But that doesn't matter. The only relevant question is, do you trust in Christ as your Savior? Are you trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation? That's why he came. And those who put their faith in Jesus become daughters and sons of God. You become his own. That's what he's talking about. That is the object. You are the object of his love. Finally, his love's persistence. It says, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And it's that last little phrase I want to consider, to the end. This is his love's persistence. We've talked about this several times throughout the weeks. His love is steadfast, hesed love. We just read that in Hosea this morning. God's, it says God's desire is steadfast love. Hesed is love that doesn't end and never gives up. It's, it's not dependent on our goodness or our beauty. It's not dependent on anything in us. Thanks be to God. Once, once we become a daughter or son of God, born again by sheer grace into his family, we're in the family and there's nothing we can do to lose that. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you have become a son or daughter of God. And if you're born into his family, you simply cannot be unborn. You are his. I want to read you just three magnificent passages that teach this. First, the one comes from um, John uh, 10, chapter 10, verse 27 through 30. It's he's Jesus speaking. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, I give them eternal life. They don't earn it, they don't deserve it. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. John 6, 
37 through 40, Jesus speaking again says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. Ever. 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 For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And in Romans 8, 35 through 39, St. Paul asks and answers a profound question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you are in Christ, you simply cannot be separated from his love. He will love you to the end. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. So how are we to apply this, our, our, our apply our lives to this truth? It's it is so, so important for us not to just hear and receive the word of God, but to live in, in light of it, to to amend our lives, to allow it to change us. So what precisely are we to do with this reality? Okay, so if you brought something to take notes with, get ready, because I'm going to give you a long, detailed, and tedious list. I'm kidding. The main answer to what are we to do is nothing. The main answer is nothing. To ask a question like, now, how do I apply this to my life would be a trivialization of the point of this study. And Dane Orland actually gives this illustration. If an Eskimo wins a vacation to a warm, sunny place, he doesn't arrive in his hotel room, step out onto the balcony, and wonder how to apply that to his life. He just enjoys it, just basks in it. But there is one thing for us to do. Jesus says it in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. Why do we not do this? 
Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin, commenting on Jesus' telling of the parable of the prodigal son, tells us it encapsulates the whole point of our study of the heart of Christ. This is what he wrote. That which keeps men off, that they simply know not Christ's mind and heart. That which keeps men off is that they simply know not Christ's mind and heart. The truth is, he is more glad of us than we are of him. The father of the prodigal was the forwarder of the two to that joyful meeting. Have you a mind? He that came down from heaven as himself says in the text, to die for you will meet you more than halfway as the prodigal's father did. Oh, therefore come in unto him. If you knew his heart, you would. Go to him. All that means is open yourself up to him. Let him love you. I love this quotation from Dane Orland in the epilogue of the book. He says this, the Christian life boils down to two steps. Step one, go to Jesus. Step two, see step one. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. His heart for you, the real you, is gentle and lowly, so go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he is there. He lives there, right there, and his heart for you, not on the other side of it, but in that darkness, is gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. There's a profoundly moving story in Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. just want to read it to you. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, by the way, sinner is not just like like, yeah, we're all sinners, saved by grace or whatever, you know, forgiven. It's like, that's her reputation. It's very, very ill repute, who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. Rutro. <laughs> <laughs> Certain moneylender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I'm so struck by the unvarnished and unedited and unadorned way she just comes to Jesus. She came in faith, believing that he could forgive her and cleanse her and change her, that he could take the unholy and the unlovely and make it holy and beautiful, that he could consecrate those things. She came in repentance, profuse with tears. She came withholding nothing. It's lost on us in this story, but that alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment was likely her life savings. At the very least, it was a year's wages. Think about that. What are you holding back? that fear, that resentment, that envy, that unforgiveness, that relationship, that addiction, that secret sin, that thing you justify as not really that big a deal. Money, status. There are just so many things, big and small, that we hold on to. But she she brought it all. She held nothing back. She simply came to him. And that's his invitation to us. Go to him. If you knew his heart, you would. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.